Podcast Revolution Network presents The Way with Noah. Hey, 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 everybody. This is your girl, Anoa. Welcome to another edition of The Way with Anoa. It is March 14th, 2019. I have a really great interview coming up uh, with, um, you know, someone who's like an expert in his field. It's really exciting to me when I get to talk to such uh, really cool people. Um, And everyone I talk to, you know how I do. Everyone I talk to is cool people, but there are some people who really stand out as just amazing individuals in their field. And Timothy Faust is definitely one of them. We chat about the Medicare for, we chat generally about Medicare for all, single payer, healthcare. Um, Tim is just a wealth of knowledge on these issues. But we talk specifically about the Medicare for all legislation that Representative Pramila Jaipal had rewritten and introduced um, recently, and there's, you know, big movement in, around all that with tons of co-sponsors. Um, and, and it's funny because we opined in the episode, we were wondering um, whether or not Bernie Sanders, when he reintroduces his legislation, would he actually take up and learn some things from the additions, like particularly around a long-term care that are in the, the Jayapal bill. And from recent news stories, it seems like that is something now that's going to be added and revamped in, in terms of the bill Burning will introduce. So that's pretty cool because we had already talked about it. Um, we also talk a little bit about what does it mean to organize? Like, how do we break this down and get out there and, and start working with the people? It's great that we have this stuff happening at the federal level, but it's really important that we start looking at state and local opportunities to move people on healthcare issues and get them in the mindset of thinking and organizing around healthcare, right, as a right, as an issue, doing the political education, the outreach, bringing the morning propaganda to the people, so to speak, but then also looking at ways and mechanisms that we can streamline and start steering people towards Medicare for All. I know there are a lot of people, particularly who were annoyed with some of the state-level candidates last cycle, who weren't automatically talking about Medicare for All while they were on the campaign trail stateside. It is really hard, and, and Tim and I were talking about this, to talk about something that's still going to take a longer time off for implementation, for development, et cetera, when we're when we have opportunities to, you know, immediately impact people's lives, right? Like in terms of we still have states that are fighting to simply expand Medicaid. And one of the things we talk about, you guys will hear this, is just that it's it's a it's a it's not an either or, it's a both and, right? So I definitely think that when we're talking about, and I've said this before, particularly around my own support for Stacey Abrams for governor here in Georgia, that expanding Medicaid immediately impacts lives of people that we know we can can touch and see, right? Medicare for all is definitely something amazing that will happen. Hopefully it's something that we're going to push for and it's going to happen nationally, but also we need to be building that, that ground up, right? We talk about grassroots movements and it's not just a bunch of people locally organizing around federal level work. It's also getting local, looking at what does it mean to be a local candidate, embracing and dealing and grappling around local issues in relation to these other issues that are also being taken up at these other level, levels of government. Um, dope conversation, so definitely, you know, listen to all of it. 
Tim's book is coming out soon, and we'll definitely talk once that drops. But, you know, I'm talking to Tim, I got really excited. And, you know, healthcare is something that impacts all of our lives, and we all have our interests, you know, our our issue streams, right? And that healthcare advocacy, I'm not even going to pretend like I've been some advocate around any of these issues. Um, Reproductive justice, you know, abortion is healthcare. Um, That is a conversation that is ongoing constantly. There's constant advocacy around it. But at the same time, right now, there is a real push. There's a real force through national, you know, national or special interests are really pushing state legislatures, particularly several in the South right now are passing this, these six week abortion ban bills. And as a recent article in Rewire correctly pointed out, these are essentially total abortion bans, right? And they know these things are unconstitutional. They know that they are not going to pass, you know, muster on 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 review upon you know judicial review. However, they're trying to weaken. They're trying to weaken people's you know uh, 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 drive, people's sense of defending the right that so that when they go back to the twenty week ban, right it's seen as more reasonable or more moderate. They're trying to move the goalposts so that they can actually get the ban they really want. And there are some out there who really do want to get rid of all abortion, but they're trying to move the goalposts to get us to a certain point. And it's particularly frustrating. You know, this past week we had Georgia, last week we had Georgia and Tennessee, I believe it was on the same day. It wasn't in the same day. It was like within a day or two of each other. Georgia and Tennessee had uh, passed such bans through at least one chamber of their state legislature. Um, I think Mississippi is also another state that has this in its rotation, this um, cycle. Um, This also brings a lot of attention to the fact that 2019, Mississippi is actually one of the states that has state level elections happening this year. Um, But, you know, ongoing work is ongoing. I mean, we think about electoral work in politics strictly in terms of electing people, but there's a whole level of legislative advocacy and other work that goes in once people are elected, whether they are our people or not. Um, even for those who don't believe in voting, there is still a whole level of activism and engagement that happens. And today, um, there are probably hundreds, I guess, from the estimates in the video. I unfortunately was not made, able to make it out of my domicile to join them, but send so much love, solidarity, and support to local organizers, as well as the national orgs that lent support to uh, the, the No Abortion Bans Georgia action, uh, Pissed Off Peaches, Hands Off Georgia, um, so many different wonderful hashtags. The the handmaids were out there, uh, have been out there this week and were out there today too. So people converged on the Capitol today here in Georgia to really send a stand about, or send a message to take a stand about this abortion bill, HB 481, which is really an anti-choice. We need to stop. I, I learned this term in one of my interviews with a, with a writer from um, with a writer from with an analyst from Rewire.news, I've I, I interviewed quite a few folks from Rewire.news over the past year or so. But I can't remember exactly who explained this to me. It might have been the host of Choiceless, which is a great podcast to check out. Um, but we talked about how we should stop saying pro-life because really, when you're pro-choice, pro-choice just means that you're open to the opportunity. People have choice, right? You could be pro-life. You could be pro-abortion. You're open to opportunity and possibility. I mean, really, these people are anti-choice, right? They don't want any choice, no matter what their personal position is. They don't want any choice to exist for for women. Um, and for those who can become pregnant, appreciate other folks also correcting that. 
there are people who are non-women who may also be pregnant and that is not my area of expertise so i'm going to leave that and put a pin in that right there that conversation but we do need to recognize the language and the way in which we're talking about these things but what happened today what is happening across the country there were actually simultaneous actions i believe there were actually also actions happening in mississippi as well um since the southeast is basically under attack by anti-choice forces at the same time but this is healthcare. And here in Georgia, Georgia is the worst for maternal mortality, and that is disproportionately affecting Black women in particular. There are 79 counties, approximately half, excuse me, approximately half of our counties do not have obstetrical care. Say it again, approximately half of the county, 79 counties in Georgia do not have obstetrical care in the county. So we have a, a maternal mortality crisis. We have half of our counties do not have obstetrical care. Um, no OBGYNs, no gynecological care either. So we're talking about a real serious health crisis. We have a we have a legislature that is reluctant to actually embrace what is publicly accepted here, what is publicly wanted and needed here in terms of expanding Medicaid. They want to spend a million dollars to pay a consultant to do a study, to make a suggestion, to do a thing. There is some openness with the current governor to do a governor asterisk um, to do a uh to waiver, to look at Medicaid waivers, but that is going to be more costly overall and actually help fewer people. Um, so there is a lot that is happening in terms of healthcare. And I really appreciate this conversation with Tim because it puts a lot into perspective about what we need to look at when we're talking about advocacy and really engaging with people because there are so many crucial issues that are directly important to the lives of you know everyday folk. And we need to make sure that we are bringing things to them in a way that's one, easy for them to understand, we're relating to them and not using all these big terms of high flute in language. I mean, like when we talk about money and politics, like when we really get down to the level of influence and special interest, this is bread and butter stuff. Like like money and politics should actually be a bread and butter issue because when you think about it, that influences so many, that influences every other decision that is made about our lives, right? Every decision about our lives is influenced by the money that is flowing into the hands of elected officials, state legislatures, um, at you know state executives, etc., county level, state level, city level, local level. You know, I mean, it, it all goes back to money and politics and that influence that runs counter, contrary to the needs of the people. So I'm gonna let you get to this interview with Tim. Like I said, it's dope. Tim is an amazing person. It was a joy to have this conversation and definitely look at how you can support work around there. There is a national organizing action. Um, check out the links in the description to figure out how you can get involved in terms of what's going on around Medicare for all. If you have you know local orgs that are looking at expanding um, Medicaid, that is a good position to start working with people. And then you start educating folks as you're working along, right? I mean, there's also, we were talking about in our conversation about Idaho and looking to other states as examples of maybe how to build and organize. Because quite honestly, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can adopt other templates, other models as templates for our own local success and then make it what we need it to be. We don't have to completely build everything from scratch, but we do need to be making sure that we're organizing with the people who are directly affected. I hope people learn more about the issues that are going on around us. So I'm gonna put a pin in it right here. I'm going to kick you over to this episode and y'all drop me a line. Thank you so much for the support. Hit me up on Patreon, patreon.com slash the way with Fanoa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the way with Fanoa. Um, we're going to talk about healthcare. I'm not even going to do any really long winded uh, introductions because I have a great guest who is an expert 
not just in his own right, like he's just an expert. Um, I'm sure you all have read some of this guy's work and have seen or heard, you know, and talk about Medicare for all, et cetera, previously. But um, I reached out. Uh, my guest today is Timothy Faust. Uh, we we exchanged some correspondence about uh, Pramila Jayapal just introduced new Medicare for all legislation. There have been a lot of chatter about why is she doing this? Why is she rewriting? If it ain't broke, don't fix it type of stuff. And so then there was this article that came across my timeline uh, from Splinter News, the only guide to Medicare for all that you will ever need. And it's a very comprehensive guide um, that goes through what Medicare for all is, what's in the new bill, kind of some other things. And so then I reached out to Tim and I was just like, hey, can we chat? Because this is great. And this is not my area. And I try really hard not to, not to go into spaces that are not mine and reach out to people who are definitely those experts and practitioners in those areas. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, no, thank you for having me. This is really fun. Awesome. Um, so just thinking about, like, I know you're also working on a book, um, Health Justice Now, Single Payer, and What Comes Next. Can you just talk to us about what even is, you know, single payer? I mean, we've been, we've, we've been advocating. A lot of people keep saying they want it. Uh, some folks don't even know what it is and think they don't want it little bit about what is single payer and 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 how can how does that help make healthcare work for us all sure i'll give you a one-liner and i'll kind of walk through how we get to this conclusion so single payer is this healthcare model in which we pool all of our money together that we spend on healthcare and use this pool to take care of everybody in the pool uh long term it's a single payer there's one uh, group one organization medicare uh paying for all of our medical Right now, what we have is this really fragmented multi-payer system. You've got private insurance. You've got different parts of Medicare. You've got 50, 51 different Medicaid programs. You've got the VA, the IHS, so on and so forth. A lot of folks are uninsured. So this all boils down to kind of the core question of what is insurance and why do we have insurance in the first place? None of our American insurance structures were like designed to be long-term. They were all like little short-term fixes that ended up getting stapled together into this big behemoth that we have now. So we have to have insurance, right? Insurance we need to have because being sick generally is expensive. It's too expensive. Uh, no, nobody can really afford their own medical costs, right? Think about if you were, God forbid, like hit by a car or had a heart attack or even just like, you know, sliced part of your finger open. Uh, you probably can't afford what it costs to, uh, to, to, to take care of that, especially if it's a chronic or long-term condition. So um, we buy into things called insurance plans. We, we put some of our money in. Uh, everybody puts in some money. And then when one person gets sick, we use that pool of money to pay for the person who is sick. This generally works because uh, at a given time, most people aren't sick. And uh, uh, people, the people who are sick, uh, uh, only some are really, really expensive and the rest aren't that expensive. I think like in a given year, 50% of medical costs come from a very small percent of the population, 5% of the population. Uh, um, you've got like a, a, a very small people who are spending all of our uh, insurance money. So you can have a big insurance pool, and because you've got enough people who are paying in and not, not taking out, uh, you can afford to cover everybody. That's the idea of a risk pool. But in America, instead of having a bunch of, like, a, a single risk pool, which would be what a single payer is, we've kind of, like, divvied it up and, like, licensed it up for, 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 for private purchasing and selling, right? So private insurance companies don't want to spend any money in paying uh, out insurance claims. They just want healthy people. And if, uh, uh, because it's very expensive to insure a sick person, they try to find ways to kick out sick people or prevent you from using your insurance. That's like the idea of a copay or coinsurance, even your premiums. 
They're trying to get as much as they can out of you and give as little as they can back. Um, and like that's, that's almost not their fault. They're private companies. That's the thing they have to do uh, in, in order to exist. They're, I think they're big, horrible monsters, but um, they're like operating by rules that make sense if you accept that these monsters need to exist in the first place. But all this like kind of like awful series of calamities results in two core problems in American healthcare, which are the problems of cost and the problems of coverage. Coverage just means that we have people who are uninsured. In a, a so-called first world country, uh, it is morally indefensible to think that we let people die um, or go into poverty because they're sick. We absolutely, without question, have the resources. It is incontrovertible that we have resources to take care of everybody. We just actively choose not to. So there's a coverage problem. Uh, and then two, the problem of cost. Medical costs rise in the U.S. much faster than anywhere else. That's for a couple of reasons. One is the um, because you have this fragmented insurance pool, no individual insurer can really negotiate prices down, right? They're all operating at a disadvantage. They got to basically go to a hospital and say, hey, will you be a network? And they got to take whatever prices the hospital gives them. It ends up being something like three to five times higher, sorry, three to seven times higher uh, what Medicare offers uh, um, uh, a, a hospital because Medicare has 44 million people. Also, unit costs are really high. There's this, uh, a lot of medical fraud and a lot of medical waste. And it's not like a patient trying to commit fraud or like an individual doctor really driving up the costs. It's things like, well, think of like Martin Shkreli and pharma companies who uh, drive up costs of drugs uh, thousands of times higher than they need to be. Or uh, an MRI, for example, in the U.S. costs five times more than the exact same machine doing the exact same thing when performed in Australia. Basically, costs are high because people can get away with it and nobody can really like bring them down. Nobody has the negotiating power to drive those costs down. So what a single payer does is it lumps all this money together and lumps all these people together, all the healthy people and all the people who need healthcare, and uses that as a really large negotiation, negotiation tool, becomes a de facto price setter. If uh, a single payer is the only game in town, it can say to an MRI uh, company, hey, we're going to pay you, let's say, $1,000 for an MRI. Take it or leave it. And the MRI company basically has to take it because there's no other insurer around to, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to go get money from. Try to, try, try to go grip that money. From. So a single payer solves at once the problems of cost and of coverage and provides health care at lower cost to all people in the U.S. It's really a pretty simple process. We just made this thing really, really complicated. And the people who make it complicated happen to be the people who get paid to profit from that, that complication. Absolutely. Thank you so much for, for, for breaking all that down. Like, I mean, so many of us exist in this system we we use it or we don't have it to use and we know we don't have it but we don't really know like really understand like the ins and outs and how all this you know plays into so when we're talking about medicare for all um and and like this this new bill that has been released by representative um Pramila Jayapal from Washington like i was saying in the beginning there was a lot of apprehension about her rewriting the bill it was you know there was concerns that it was being written behind closed doors with special interests some of the special interests are like, you know, National Nurses United and, and other organizations, um, Public Citizen and other organizations like that. But like it has now been released. It has, I forgot the last count of co-sponsors, but can you talk to us a little bit about Medicare for All and, and, and this specific, this, this bill, this, this, this federal legislation that we're seeing is trending us um, hopefully in a direction towards single payer health care? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the first real, I think, Medicare for All bill of the, of the contemporary era. Bernie's bill was insufficient. I have five standards I apply to what a single-payer bill could or could not be, and Jaya Paul's is the first one to tick off all of them. 
um, I can go through those five standards, or, or I, I could. I, we, we can go back to that. Um, Jai Paul's bill was written. Uh, you could say behind closed doors. I think not because they wanted to keep it secret, but because once the bill is out, people can get upset about it. Uh, and I don't really ever want to like come to the defense of one politician too aggressively, unless they're paying me to do so, and no one's ever offered. Um, but like I, I like. CCD, which is a, a, a disability organization, disability rights organization, was like at the table. And it's extremely rare to see disabled people like or people with disabilities being considered in healthcare bills like humanely, justly, and in the right way. This bill really put um, a, a lot of people uh, in a good position. And it, 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 I, I'm really optimistic about it. Um, this bill offers five things that I think are essential. One, it has that single risk pool, making it a single pair. Two, it covers comprehensive coverage, which is Medical, dental, vision, uh, um, mental, long-term care, and reproductive care for all people in the U.S. Um, I'm not positive about immigration status. I think it applies to all people, regardless of, immig of Im immigration status. Uh, if not, I'd be a point I'd want, I'd, I'd want to push back on. Three, it sets standards at the federal level. One of the big problems in Medicaid is that Medicaid is administered by states. And so states have the ability to kind of claw back a program or say, oh, we're not going to pay for this or this is optional or whatever. You don't want to have that happen. You want to have like all this, all this care be guaranteed and be paid for federally. States don't have uh, as much money as the federal government. And so this has that. This has a, a federal standards and, and, and federal payments. But also you still want to have some local flexibility. Um, what healthcare looks like in Houston versus Atlanta versus Birmingham versus Southeast Atlanta versus North Al uh, 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 Atlanta are all look very different from each other. And so you want to have some agency closer to the ground understand and be able to allocate money towards specific kind of like healthcare problems or healthcare related issues that uh, are more local to their area, right? Like a problem or like a program hatched in New York City isn't going to always play well or like be applicable in Boise, Idaho, for example. So giving some states local flexibility or regional actors local flexibility to disperse these federal funds is a good idea. Jai Paul's bill has that. And then lastly, it has just a couple of wonky budget tools, um, global budgeting, which sets a big national healthcare budget, uh, some other things. It prohibits hospitals and other uh, healthcare companies from using the money they receive from the single payer for profit or marketing or campaign contributions or union busting. Uh, so a, a, just a, a good series of little budget tools that help keep costs down and also prevent uh, um, these companies from doing the bad things they very desperately want to do, uh, at least with our uh, federal money. And so this bill is, it is robust. Sanders' bill did not meet those five, uh, those five criteria. Most importantly, it didn't include, and as far as I'm aware, it doesn't yet include uh, long-term care for people with disabilities, which is uh, extremely important. It sounds like a niche topic, but it's going to affect 15 million families in the next 10 years. Um, long-term care is basically whether you can receive health care at home or whether you're forced into a nursing home. Nursing homes are often run for profit. Uh, my friend with disabilities calls them a place where people with disabilities go to die. Uh, it's more of a warehouse than a care center. Um, and unless you offer comprehensive long-term care in a single-payer bill, states won't do it on their own. And uh, families have to, if they can afford to get married in the first place, divorce. They lose enough money to qualify for long-term care. Um, people can't own cars or other assets because that bumps them out of the eligibility pool. It's a big mess. And so uh, Jayapal, including people with disabilities at the table and, and, and guaranteeing robust comprehensive long-term care, uh, is what makes this bill, I think, head and shoulders above uh, Sanders' bill. But, you know, Sanders is going is to put out his bill soon, I believe. Uh, maybe he'll learn a lesson from this and include long-term care uh, in his own bill. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. I mean, 
I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to break this down because healthcare and insurance and how it's all financed and covered is something that we all as you know human beings are intimately involved with in one way or another but it is one of the most mystical things like you literally don't understand how any of this stuff works and like even the recent like requests to have uh you know health and health providers documenting what they charge so you at least know is still like a part of that whole like th- that keeps us separate from really understanding what is going on and the fact that we're not just talking about healthcare and quality of life but really so much of this is about um american health finance like you say here you say the the problem of American health finance, not care, but finance can be expressed in two complementary points. It is extremely profitable to charge a sick person as much as possible so long as someone is footing the bill. It is not profitable to insure people who are sick or who are likely to become sick. And like looking at this as a profit-driven um, industry, right? Our lives, our health is a profit-driven industry. That's like insane. Um, oh, we're, we're being held hostage. We are being held hostage. Like I, I know there are some people who understand this feeling. Like my family, my father was diagnosed with a rare form of cancer a couple of years ago. We actually just came up on his two-year anniversary from his stem cell replacement therapy, and we're so lucky that he his health insurance was so comprehensive and covered a huge majority share. My parents could be my my dad and my stepmom could be among those who would have to go into bankruptcy because of the his bills. Like their share of the payment is still a lot and it's still been a crunch on the family, but it's nothing like so many Americans who have gone into bankruptcy, who have had devastating financial losses because of needed life-saving care. So when we're talking about a Medicare for all, you know, program, like people talk like this is pie in the sky, it's impossible, we're never going to be able to do that. Can you just talk to us a little bit more just about like the reality and, and necessity of, you know, the of not just advocating for, but actually pushing for people to implement and see Medicare for all become a reality. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think we can't not do it. Uh, I don't think we can, one, we can't afford not to like in the financial sense and two, we can't afford not to in the moral sense. Um, so long as profit exists in healthcare, the, like as long as health is a commodity or is treated like a commodity, people will be made to suffer or denied care for profit. End of sentence. And so, so long as that's permitted to, and like, it doesn't happen randomly. It's not, like, it's not like a random sample of who is made to suffer. Uh, it's, uh, are you black or brown? Are you a woman? Are you poor? Are you, one, are you some combination of those things? Those are the folks who are always unduly made to suffer. And so the consequences we see in America, like uh, uh, natal mortality among black infants is twice what it is of white infants. Uh, this is the most dangerous place in the world uh, among the so-called first world to, uh, um, to be pregnant. Uh, the, the, the maternal mortality rate is, is, uh, is massive. I think a, 60% of those are entirely clinically preventable, like by taking someone's blood pressure. Like these are the consequences of what happens when you take money away from people who aren't profitable to insure and push it towards people who are profitable. You have a basically medical apartheid uh, um, across a bunch of different factors in the U.S. But I like the, the practical financial side. Like we're being gouged. Uh, we are, our medical costs go up uh, faster and more than any other country. Most of those countries happen to have. Uh, uh, universal healthcare programs, not always single payer, but at least a universal healthcare program. Um, and the only way to solve this problem is through giving one large body negotiation power to kind of square up against what's becoming an increasingly like you have growing monopolization of healthcare provision in the U.S. And the only thing that could ever begin to tackle that is a large and robust and well-funded and generally humane uh, um, single payer. We can't afford not to. like uh, what is it right now? We spend 3.5 trillion dollars on healthcare. 
in a year, which frankly, I, I don't mind spending money on healthcare. It's a good thing to spend money on. I'd rather spend it on that than like on bombers or whatever. But like we spend a lot of money on healthcare. Uh, in the next 10 years, if nothing changes, that'll go up to, that'll go up to $4.7 trillion uh, in, in a year. Um, that's tens of trillions of dollars with a T. That's a, that's a, that's, that's like a larger quantity of, of, of money than you can, uh, than I can uh, comprehend. I only barely know what a billion is. Uh, 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 and we're spending, uh, you know, a thousand times that on, 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 on healthcare costs, on healthcare waste, because we refuse to change, to change course. Um, and the lucky, lucky thing is, this is imminently winnable, I believe, because it's wildly popular for a couple of reasons. When we won right now, you poll Medicare for all, and you get 70% in favor. And you can bring that down by saying bad things. You can bring that up by saying good things. But by and large, this is not like a radical proposition. I would argue that our current model is, extract, is in fact extremely radical, and it's very punitive, and uh, it's the weird aberration, not Medicare for all. But two, nobody likes their insurance company. No, people like being insured, but nobody's like really like gung ho about Blue Cross. No one's like standing at no. No one's like really jazzed about like their specific insurance company. Um, and so you kind of bring these things together. You, you have the seeds for a broad movement, but it's got to be a broad movement. Uh, I'm going to go a little bit off, a little bit off topic. I think I don't think this is the thing you win at the federal level. I think this is the thing you win at the local level. Even a socialist president can't win Medicare for all by him or by herself. Um, it's, it's, it's a bill. It requires a mass popular movement. But like the cool thing about healthcare is that a lot of things are healthcare. Health finance is focused on clinical care, right? It's focused on what happens in the hospital, uh, in the waiting room, in the doctor's office. But only a fifth of your health outcomes are driven by your ability to access healthcare. The rest of it is things outside the clinic, extra clinical care. Like, for example, you get sick and die of exposure to the cold way faster than you get sick, uh, and die from cancer. It takes a longer period of time. Uh, uh, housing, therefore, is healthcare. Food is healthcare because um, the cardiac failure and diabetes are made in the kitchen uh, uh, more so than they are um, uh, by, by, by genetics. But um, if you don't have access to healthy food to eat or you don't have time or materials to cook or prepare food for you and your family, maybe you're working three jobs and you don't have time to, fucking, or you don't have time to uh, cook anything, um, or you live in a place where food isn't sold like at a rate you can afford because it's not profitable to sell the poor person vegetables, then food is healthcare. Uh, rehabilitation is healthcare. Transit is healthcare. You can't get to your doctor's office and you get sicker, then like all these things kind of coalesce in, in, in this, this broader image of, I think, of, of, of health justice, of striking at kind of the social and structural determinants of what causes health problems in the first place and what exacerbates them. And so when you organize for these things, you are in... I think you, you are also organizing for a uh, single payer. So if you want to win something, if, if you want to win single payer at home, just I would argue, pick the thing at home that you can win and then go out and win it. If it's housing protections, if it's uh, anti-carceral work, if it's uh, um, reproductive justice work, if it's tra transportation work or housing work or, 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 or even food-based work, like that's all healthcare. And it's very easy to take somebody and explain why we need Medicaid expansion, for example, like they did in Idaho, and take that one step further into Medicare for all. People kind of like, once they, you know, it's a, it's a materialist uh, idea of reform. Once people kind of have won something, they get hungry to win the next thing. You, you can carry them piece by piece to the broader goal. I don't think there's going to be like this big singular movement for single payer in the U.S. Um, I think it'll be a big jumbled patchwork of popular movements that kind of build from the bottom up into a larger, like, like, coalesced movement for single payer, kind of like a big jellyfish or a big quilt. Uh, and I think that's going to be the thing that buoys 
uh, a movement of uh, elected officials into actually supporting this thing and passing it instead of just paying it lip service when it's a pie in the sky bill. Absolutely. I really appreciate that. Can you let's I just want to just step back to something that you just talked to. You just mentioned you just mentioned looking at using Medicaid for Medicaid expansion as basically like a launch pad to, to, to expanding and having more um, organizing and getting people on board with the idea of Medicaid for all. And some people have argued that and, and, and I've watched this happen. Um, Twitter, unfortunately, is a source of information and a very interesting place of curated thought but it's definitely not necessarily representative of the very real way we need to interact in the world at times. And I, and one thing that I have seen is the way people have respond when folks like we need to at least expand Medicaid, they don't, they don't, they don't foreclose on the possibility of Medicaid, Medicare for all, but we have like, you know, people like state folks who will advocate for expanded Medicaid and then that's where they stop. And people will be like, no, 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 we just need to go straight for Medicare for all. Can you, can you just talk to me a little bit about the idea of using something that we all very know and, and understand the very real consequence of what expanded Medicaid could do for some place. We saw it happen, like you're talking about, in places like Idaho. It's definitely something that's necessary here in Georgia. Um, what does, like, like, how do we leverage that as a call to action, like expanded Medicaid, which already has a lot of support to taking people to that next step of understanding Medicare for all? I we're going to see that play out, play out in Idaho. I think I think we're, we're going to see how that works. I don't think it's a it's a gimme, but I really do think once you give people Medicaid, they'll be inclined to fight for the next bit, or like that you, you build a movement off that. In Idaho, uh, I, I was in Idaho for the election. I got to watch just the, the Idaho Medicaid movement was three friends, three friends that bought a van, painted it green, and drove around the U.S. Uh, doing a citizens a citizens ballot measure to uh, expand Medicaid in the state, and it won overwhelmingly, I think 61%, um, three quarters of the counties, including like uh, the rural ones and the conservative ones, uh, just an overwhelming victory. And uh, immediately state reps began trying to sabotage it, add rule requirements, limit the bill, uh, add a bunch of riders, whatever, and they got shot down over and over and over and over and over. This really is like a popular movement in Idaho. And I, 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 Medicaid expansion is a thing I think absolutely worth fighting for, and I don't think that you're at odds to do either. If you can win Medicaid in your state, absolutely do it, because there's uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives at stake, and like uh, uh, they deserve this thing. The fact that Medicaid hasn't been expanded is, I think, an actual sin. Uh, um, and uh, it, it, like, I don't think you lose fighting Medicare for all by focusing on Medicaid expansion. I think it's the job of the clever organizer to kind of, to kind of build that bridge, saying, okay, We've solved this problem. Like we've used federal funds to pay for healthcare for people in the state uh, who need it. Now, what if we just use those federal funds to pay for all of us instead of being kind of shackled to uh, um, um, Blue Cross? Like in, in, in Georgia, you just had an issue twice now where Blue Cross kept dropping hospitals from uh, government plans uh, while the plans were in effect. People had to like kind of jump around and a bunch of like rural communities were just totally hosed over. Uh, um, like there's a lot of bad will you can play with there. But I, I don't know. I have to believe that like a movement which brings material reform, we can point to as saying, hey, a good thing can happen. Look at these people who now have health care. One, those people will come out and vote because they've been given something to vote for, I believe. That's a, a model of um, electoral politics I agree with. And two, becomes an easier argument saying, hey, we used this federal money to pay for health care. We reaped all these benefits. All these people are alive now. All these financial consequences are great. Uh, why don't we expand this idea one step further? I don't think they're at odds. And like, 
you and I can shout Medicare for all from now until 2024. And like, I'm going to, but that won't help anybody eat. <laughs> it won't help anybody go to the hospital. Uh, Medicaid expansion, if, you, if, it's a, if you're in a place where, it, where you can work on it, I think seems like a, a much more urgent priority. But like, it doesn't need to like replace Medicare for all. You know what I mean? Like, I think people are capable of walking mm -hmm. and chewing gum, chewing gum at the same time. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that you've watched and you, you've been doing a lot of research. You've been on the ground in multiple places where like this different, I mean, it almost sounds like multi-tiered organizing, right, would be, would be crucial on this issue. And even though we're talking about federal legislation, like you're pointing out, this state level, this more localized state level focused campaigns is, is, would really do a lot in terms of pushing forward the momentum. And, and I just appreciate you taking, taking that you know, it's breaking it down like that, because that's what, that's kind of what my thinking has been. Like, at least if we can get, if we can get this one thing, not saying that we stop there, but it's like, we're still working toward this other, more better system. But in the meantime, Medicaid expansion, particularly someplace like here in Georgia, where we're seeing rural hospitals closing at alarming rates, we're seeing, um, you know, massive issues in terms of, you know, un underinsured and uninsured individuals, and we have issues with maternal mortality rates uh, of, of marginalized communities and just a whole host of things. And it's all very well supported by the majority of people in both parties. And yet we have um, elected officials that are sitting on their hands because they want to spend millions of dollars on uh, consultants to create studies and do everything else. And I feel like our organizing around Medicare for All in some Facet has to include these in the meantime measures, not because we're trying to uh, pacify, you know, the naysayers or that we're, we're, we're not really committed to the overall goal, but we do need to help provide people some small victories at, on, on the road to Medicare for all and having more in line with the single payer healthcare system. Absolutely. I, 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 I agree 100%. Um, and also I think you get momentum, right? Like winning, like nobody's ever beaten the GOP machine in Idaho before, like much less of, of like three randos from Sandpoint. Um, and now they did and they won and now they get, they get to pick their next thing. I think their next thing's going to be teacher, uh, uh, teacher wages or maybe, uh, uh, um, right to work in Idaho. But like they get to do that now because they've proven that they, they're basically kingmakers. Uh, I think winning Medicaid expansion gives somebody um, a big chance to pick up on a next project, and that could be the, one, one of the things that builds the Medicare for all. But you, you can't, this thing won't work if we don't have, uh, like, there's going to be ways for states to try to gut Medicare for all. I don't know how, but like through lawsuits, right? We live in an era where the judicial system, especially in the Fifth Circuit, uh, um, is going to be really uh, a, a contra whatever kind of uh, uh, um, healthcare reform is issued. So if you don't have local electeds uh, in your state, um, I just, I, I, they will be, it opens up a lot of risk, I think, to a lot of lawsuits that, that could be very dangerous in the long term. Mm -hmm, definitely. So as we're looking at this legislation now pending and, and, and that has been introduced in Congress, and we're just thinking about just the landscape, everything you're seeing, what, what, what is next? I mean, I know we're expecting Senator Bernie Sanders will introduce uh, a, another version, a Senate version um, soon. And I know he had introduced Senate legislation. I mean, he's been introducing legislation in the past. Uh, former Representative John Conyers had been introducing legislation in the past as well. But what are we looking at in terms of the new landscape, I guess, in terms of 
feel like we're in a different place now than where we have been in previous years. Um, even as opponents rush to 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 file um, consolation bills, I guess for lack of a term, like like what is kind of the current landscape and where where do you think we're headed? I I'm not very good at guessing, um, but I'll make a guess. <laughs> uh, that wasn't uh, um, question, but I'm just interested in no. what, what you're seeing and what you're thinking. So I agree with you. I, I think we are in a different place. I think Jayapal's bill being robust, I think it having that many supporters is like really good. I think we'll keep seeing more and more like lousy bills be brought to the table, whether they're offered by mealy-mouthed centrist think tanks that do nothing, uh, like Center for American Progress or like Healthcare Extra for All or whatever, like all those. Uh, um, like just totally hosed up programs. Uh, they'll be they'll be pumped out in attempts, I think, to kind of uh, try to osmose some of the Medicare for All energy. We'll have more conservative reactionary bills that do don't do anything. But I think it's kind of going to be a stalemate uh, um, at least until at least until the 2019 elections. So I'm honestly I'm more interested in like uh, uh, the and I'm going to quote you on this. I'm, I'm I'm more interested in the. 2019 municipal election than the 2020 landscape right now because I think we won't really know what can happen with healthcare until we see what happens um, this fall. Like, will we have a wave? Will good things happen? Is, are we are we better positioned to try to uh, um, push things forward? But I don't. I could be super wrong on this. I don't see any like radical movements on Medicare for all for like the next year or so. And we campaigned on it'll get support, but like as far as material conditions, I don't see a whole lot changing anytime soon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, and I definitely appreciate <laughs> the hat tips on the on the local elections. I mean, we were talking about this shortly before we started. Like, there's a lot of good things that are happening energy-wise when we're looking and talking about the federal level, when we're talking about presidential election cycles or particular bills being, you know, put up in Congress. But there's a lot of really good movement and work that not only is happening, but definitely needs to happen at the local level. I'm glad so many organizations are really excited about Medicare for All. So many people are talking about it, but like there's real base building that we could be doing and educating and working on stopgap measures like Medicare expansion in those remaining states that have not done so um, to really have an honest conversation about healthcare in our communities and help people be more um, informed and aware of what they could actually be doing. So yes, I, I'm, I'm constantly reminding people that 2019 is not just a, a testing stage ground for um, it's not just a staging ground for 2020. There are actually, there are state level elections happening. I mean, statewide elections are happening in Mississippi and Kentucky. And then there are some state house, state Senate, state ledge races happening in Virginia. I'm trying to think of where else off the top of my head, but there are plenty of county and city races happening too. And, and there are some implications. There are some things that can be done at even that local, local level about healthcare. Um, and so trying to get people to start thinking about this differently instead of putting solely putting all the weight on our Congress people and the potential, you know, candidates for president, we need to really be thinking about the other ways that we can work on this outside of what, what people are doing in DC. I agree. Awesome. Um, any, any, any final thoughts? Tell me, well, well, back up for a second. Let's talk a little bit about your book before, before we, we, we kind of, you know, wrap up our conversation. Cause I really do appreciate you taking the time, Renee, but you have this amazing book that's coming out. Um, I mentioned it in the very beginning and I'll mention it for folks again, health justice now, single payer and what comes next. Can you just talk, just talk to me just a little bit about your book and when can we, is it already out or is it coming out? Um, uh, it com- com- comes out in, uh, in August, August 6th. Very cool. 
Very cool. And I see pre-order prices are not expensive. So this is very much affordable, y'all. We, you, you can yeah, get- yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at pre-order prices, including a PDF copy right now. That's only $12.99, which is dope. Because sometimes these types of books be like hitting you in the head um, on price. So just tell me a little bit about your book and just kind of this labor of love that it seems like you have for this topic. Oh, yeah. So um, this is a book designed for uh, lay people because I'm a consummate lay person um, to understand kind of what we went through today. Like, what is insurance? Why do we have it? Why, why is it good? Why is it bad? Why do the bad things happen? Where do the bad things happen? Who does the bad things? And then what would we rather have instead? I would posit single pair. So I go through and kind of explain what this thing looks like in detail, answer some questions, um, you know, what happens to the employees. Uh, where does the money come from? All those kinds of questions people, people tend to have. And then I try to expand the idea of, of, of healthcare into those social and structural causes we talked about. Housing, food, uh, transportation, and the structural ones, racism, sexism, and, uh, and, and poverty. And kind of try to provide this uh, more comprehensive understanding of not only what do we have, what do we want, and what kind of lies beyond that, but what are the forces that shape healthcare in the U.S.? Um, how do they affect us directly? Uh, what are the various intersections and like this big lattice that we get caught in? Um, and how do, uh, how do we see ourselves in that? And what can we do to push for something different for something better? So I talk about like Idaho, for example, and the work that was done there. I talk about places uh, in, in Houston, which is where I'm from, uh, where I've seen some really cool stuff. Um, this kind of tr- like help a, 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 a person with a, you know, basic interest in healthcare or health finance understand kind of the cosmology of where we live and what's happening and what we would rather have instead of the thing that we have now. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. I really appreciate you a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah, this is definitely fun. Um, you guys definitely check out, well, actually, Tim, where can folks find you? How can, they, how can they follow more of your content and get to know more about what's going on in that brilliant brain of yours? Oh, uh, you're flattering me. I have a, 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 new, a newsletter. It's tinyletter.com slash error, E-R-R-O-R. I'm really bad at naming things. Um, and that's my healthcare newsletter. I send out things about once a month or so. I think I'm going to work on one um, that'll probably just have come out when, when this one comes out. I also have a Twitter account, Krulge, C-R-U-L-G-E. It's not a word, but I just made it up. Um, I post a lot of uh, uh, healthcare articles and things that I find interesting there. Um, but yeah, I think my newsletter is pretty good and I recommend it. Awesome. Well, I think that your work is awesome. I definitely recommend it. You guys, if you didn't catch that, links are in the description for this episode. Thank you again, Tim. Really appreciate you. Yeah, thank you. No, I really appreciate it.